Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Councilor Terry Whitehead has been suspended from the Police Services Board. World leaders spoke out against nationalism at a World War I centennial anniversary. And will we see the American tariffs lifted before the USMCA deal is ratified? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Councilor Terry Whitehead has been suspended from the Police Services Board. Uh, well, an oversight agency investigates a misconduct complaint. Now, we had a discussion about this on the program last week about another member of the board that was under suspension and investigation. Uh, and at the time, uh, some people on the board, we're not quite sure who, uh, told the Hamilton Spectator that that was the only investigation that was ongoing. We had information to the contrary, and that was confirmed uh, that there was another individual, and that, in fact, is Terry Whitehead. Well, he has lashed out and suggesting that there could well be a conspiracy against him. Uh, and that's why he's getting all these complaints and why uh, the board seems to have been investigating him on a semi-regular basis. Anyway, Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, uh, is with us here in studio uh, to talk about this. Are you one of that group? Apparently. I'm calling you up. <laughs> I'm proud to be, what, what do they say in Dreschel's column, an amorphous group of urban advocates. So if that means that those of us who support safer streets for children and better driving habits and things of that nature and traffic calming, if that makes me part of what we're calling, I guess, Agua. I think there's a t-shirt being printed already. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the, the Twitter response was, was pretty quick on this. Fine, so be it. I mean, I I certainly run the Urban Exchange with David Premi, and we talk about all kinds of urban issues. Uh, this idea, this sort of false narrative that the suburbs are against the urban, you know, this that goes back to amalgamation, I think that that's old. I think that most people want a successful progressive city. Uh, and so if they want to characterize a group of us who care passionately about our city and safety for our kids and our roads, then fine. Uh, but what I thought was interesting was uh, that might have been a characterization by the columnist, but the actual quote from Councillor White, head, spoke to the idea that urbanists smell blood or something, right? And I think uh, I think that's an interesting way for a public official to characterize a group of engaged citizens. If uh, Councillor Whitehead has a problem and, and is un- and not at ease with this, uh, you know, he, he, he better be aware of the fact that a couple of them just got elected to the new city council. Well, you know what, if by a, a couple, a couple of people who are... Hopefully who, there should be yeah, more. Who, who work downtown, uh, who represent downtown wards and care a lot about our urban areas, but I think, I think we're where this false narrative of this city divided. I live up on the mountain. I've had businesses, offices downtown for a long time. I don't see it as any differently that I want my mountain to move as well as my downtown. I want it to have the right kind of density and mixed housing. I mean, so this this is kind of an antiquated idea that's been used to divide us and wedge us as a city for a long time. That if you are up on the mountain, you somehow don't care about downtown and vice versa. I think those days are over. I think that Councillor Whitehead has been on council for a very long time, you know, back to those days. Uh, and so when he decides to, of all things, use social media to kind of lash out, it's never been successful for him. As a communication specialist, the advice that I give uh, is that, you know, first of all, if you're being assailed on social media or if someone is attacking a position or, or a statement, answer it if you feel you have a legitimate way to answer it. Uh, if they respond, say, you know, I appreciate the engagement. You can, If you're a public official, set up a meeting with me. Have a great day. Like two tweets and you're done. You cannot keep this thing going. And I can tell you, I was tagged in this this um, tweet with Terry Whitehead and Ryan McGreal about this particular incident that might be leading to this investigation of him. And it's been going on and on and on and on. It's not a platform for fighting a battle. It doesn't work that way. It's meant for quick information distribution and sarcasm. 
And so uh, when a public official, doesn't matter if it's Terry Whitehead or someone else, misuses such a powerful platform as Twitter. I mean, I tell my clients, Bill, Twitter is like having your own broadcast network in your hand. It goes around the world in a second, right? There's no edit feature. And if you've ever done broadcast television, if you've ever prepared for an interview or been interviewed, you would think carefully and have real focus about that performance. So just because it's in your hand and it's next to your couch (laughs) or your wine glass or whatever, doesn't mean that you should say the same thing that you would say in an interview uh, because you're going to be held to the same account, the same consequences. But some of these people, as a matter of fact, most of them, and that's just referring to this counselor, but just about all of them, have had that experience. As a public official, they have more than likely been interviewed, even if it's not on a radio show like this or a television program like what Mm -hmm. you're doing. could be somebody sticking a microphone in front of their face at a city council meeting. They're aware of that. Why all of a sudden do they go crazy when they get onto social media then? I think there are no rules or standards. No, but that's a very important point. So is it peak? You know, are they responding in a state of anger and frustration and they can't seem to to regulate themselves? Possibly. Uh, is it hubris? I mean, I, I was just doing a lot of media last week about Tony Clement and he wasn't using Twitter, but he was still, he was still sexting and he was yeah. still putting things out there that shouldn't be out there. As a public official, you have to have a higher standard and a higher understanding of the weight of your words, right? The weight of your words. I don't care whether you're a public official in terms of a politician or whether or not you lead a large company. Everything you say has more meaning when you're a leader. So something that someone else might be able to get away with with some snark is not something that you're able to get away with. And the because people assume you've had the training or they assume you've had the exposure or they assume that you have a higher purpose in, in your words and what you do. So this is not the first time that Councillor Whitehead has found that his the way that he expresses himself uh, doesn't go well, you know, and, and advice is only as good as it's taken and used, right? And there are some times where I just say, you know, Terry, step away from the Twitter machine. It's, it's not going to work out for you. But, you know, he doesn't heed the warning sometimes. So but you talk to clients about this sort mm-hmm. of thing, Laura, and this is, this is one of the things that I'm always baffled by, because uh, I do not do this. I do not engage in, in these things on, on social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will sometimes offer an opinion. I'll state my opinion and, and then out of there. That's it. Mm-hmm. But I see these things and they go back and forth and back and mm-hmm. forth and back and forth. To what end? I mean, what are they trying to accomplish? What are they trying to show? Well, it reminds me of when I would train uh, leaders, and I still do, for scrums, right? If they're in the middle of a very contentious, high-profile thing, you're going to get a scrum of media. And there's a dynamic to that scrum. They feed off of each other. Uh, and there's that old expression, you know, if you put chum in the water, the sharks are going to feed. And so I have told many clients that if you are online and you make a comment and there is sort of a, a whole bunch of people responding, some of them are anonymous and some of them, in, in my case, I've had for years a fake Laura Babcock who pretends to be me, picks fights with people on my behalf. I just laugh at it and expose it when it happens to pop up in my feed. So you don't even know that the people you think you're arguing with are even those people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to be very, very conscious of that dynamic. And I will often get messages from people going, you've got to check out the politician who's just... You know, doesn't realize they're being scrummed, doesn't realize that it's coming from all angles and that the people are feeding off of their responses, right? Um, and so you, I mean, the word to the wise out there is if you're answering something more than two statements of under 140 characters, you're explaining. That means you're losing in PR, right? If you're explaining, you're losing. So just stop explaining and get out of there. Um, but I think, Bill, to your point, no matter what advice they're given or these new platforms as they emerge, they like winning. You know, a lot of them like that have sort of the, the, they like to 
uh, like sophists. They like to argue. They like to debate points. There's a lot of that in council. There's a lot of that in boardrooms. And so I think they think that that translates to the social media world. But the point is, is that you don't know who you're arguing with and the whole world is watching. It's a whole different dynamic. Well, and you've just opened another can of worms, too, about how some of these council meetings are actually, uh, and, you know, constructive, actually destructive because you get right. this, it's this, that, and it's tit for tat. And right. uh, Okay, I, I've said my piece five minutes ago, but that other guy said something I don't like, so now I've got to get back into this. And mm-hmm. that's how you get one and a half hour debates on a, su- a subject that probably should have taken five minutes. Now they're transposing that whole concept into social media. And I, I mean, mm-hmm. and they're not the only ones. I mean, you know, the most notorious abuser of it is the guy in the White House. But, yes. but I mean, you'd like to think that, you know, there are people that are going to watch that and say, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be that person. But they're, they don't seem to understand. They, don't, they can't stop themselves. Well, it's tremendous power. I mean, it is the power of a broadcast network at your fingertips. Um, I was telling you before we came on that I made a comment about uh, a trial one Sunday afternoon watching the news, and the next morning I woke up to it being in the Star and Metro, and someone in Toronto told me about it because my quote was used as as though I'd been interviewed on the topic between two other quotes. You're allowed to do that. It was accredited to me, and I said it, right? So the, the point is, the cautionary tale in this is that just because it's close to you, and, and Steve Jobs, when he invented the iPhone, he wanted it to be an intimate extension of our of our being, right? He succeeded. Yeah. So we oftentimes have a hard time realizing that the text we just sent to our friend, um, and then we, we jump on another platform, we open another app, and suddenly we think we're in that same space. But no, actually, it'd be like if you're walking into a broadcast radio station or a television station. Um, if you don't refocus and understand the audience has changed, you're in big trouble. And even sometimes texting, right, can also get people in trouble. So what I... I I mean, it comes down to this. Think about what you have to say. Think about why you're saying it and who you're saying it to. And if you are responding in anger or in peak or in hubris uh, or God forbid you've had a liquid lunch or you've had some, you know, liquid courage or any kind of mind-altering thing, step away, turn off turn off the phone. I throw a lot of dinner parties and I say to everyone, let's take a group shot and then let's all turn off our phones so that not only can we enjoy each other's company, but that none of us are at any kind of public risk, right? Because we have to be respectful of the technology. But how many times, you mentioned uh, even this conversation, are these public officials putting themselves at risk, and maybe not intentionally, but they don't seem to get the message. And, and like I said, there's a long list, I mean, from Tony Clement to, to Donald Trump mm. and to local councillors that just seem to put themselves in, you know, not just dig their own hole, but start burying themselves. Yeah, because I, I think it's a natural instinct if you're a fighter. You are, know, they, are they above everything? Do they think, well, well I'm going to get away with this? If you think that, well, I think that's part of it. You know, when you have power for a while, you seem to think you have a lot of power. I mean, we've had Hamilton counselors who told cops, you know who I am, arresting me on my motorcycle, you know. Yeah. Yeah. We've had we've had lots of stories over the years of of counselors thinking that they were above, and I think that that when you get power, you it's hard to it's hard to stay grounded, right? It's difficult, uh, and when you have a lot of sycophants on social media supporting your cause and egging you on, it's easy to feel like you're in a just fight, right? But this all goes to metacognitive awareness. What are you saying and why? Uh, and if you don't have a sense of your own mental uh, your own mental awareness and why you're doing things, you shouldn't be communicating. And that's why I bring up again the rule about alcohol or or marijuana or anything else. As soon as you're at a point where you are not heavily focused on what you're saying and why, 
step off the machine. It's okay. The world will live without you for a while. And even if you're in t- engaged in these long-term fights, like Councillor Whitehead seems to enjoy constantly going back, then wait, wait until you've had you know a good 12-hour break and you're out of the passion of the moment. So I think there's a, there's a, it's a complex psychology of why people get into public office or into fame, Bill. Uh, and it's hard to feel like you don't have power. And when your followers are egging you on, it's even more difficult. But it's not helpful. It's not helpful to their careers. And as Councillor White has is experiencing, he's in suspension now while they investigate. And his and, claims, and not for the first yeah. time. No, and and his claims of what happened are are a little bit hard to take. I mean, I, I'm I'm not prejudging them. I hope that the investigation confirms that he had a passenger who took the photo or whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're explaining you're losing, just step away. Step away from the technology and from the the power at your fingertips until you can wield it properly. Well, and and we'll see. I, as we know, we don't know what the investigation is specifically because they haven't actually. Right, and he doesn't that. know. He's just he's just guessing that yeah. it might be about this tweet about yeah, pr- the pretty car. good guess. And and he could be right. It could be wrong. As a member of Agua, this <laughs> this amorphous group, I have no idea. Right, and this is the joke I'm making is that this is not a conspiracy. This is not something planned to get him that I'm aware of. This is just simply he posted a photo to make an argument point, and the photo uh, looked or somebody as, posted. Yeah, or some, and the, somebody. Somebody uh, actually leaned over to the driver's right, side wh- of the car is, and took a picture. Which is his theory. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it looks to people who saw it at the time like it was a photo taken from the driver's seat in not in an official parking uh, spot. And that may be a, a small um, infraction bylaw issue or, or a small legal issue or whatever, but he's on the police services board and they're not allowed to be seen, even have the perception of anything like that. So it might be a small thing that's been blown up more widely. I think the importance around safety and driving is good education for everybody and he should learn from it and move on if that's what it's about. But at the end of the day, blaming kind of the, the you know, the mob on social media. I remember a former mayor, Bertina, used to talk about the dissidents and and how they had kind of an agenda. The only agenda that I'm aware of, and I was tagged in this whole thread, was that we want to have safe roads and we want to have uh, a balance between car traffic and other safe, uh, complete streets. Look, I, I've walked that that trip too, okay, <laughs> as a city councillor. Uh, if, if you're that thin-skinned that you're going to react in, in that fashion every time you're going to find somebody who's going to criticize your work, even criticize your opinions, mm-hmm. rightly or wrongly, it's part of the job of being a public official. And and if you can't deal with that, and if you can't just roll with the punches, you, you're going to have problems. A famous president once said famously that if you can't stand the heat with the media, get out of the kitchen, right? Uh, this idea that uh, blaming scrutiny and getting angry about it, then don't be in public office. And, I, and I'm not just speaking, you know, as a theorist here. Whenever I post that I'm going to do a particular program, I get all kinds of critique and, and horrible things that people post to me. And you, you either uh, understand that it's part of the job, if you're going to be out there giving opinion that you're or giving leadership, that you're going to get some pushback. But to to let it get to the point where you need to fight every issue, even to the point where it hurts you or demeans you, it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Again, um, hopefully this will be a learning moment for Councillor Whitehead. There's another term of council coming up. And as you and I discussed the day after the election, Bill, I think that there's going to be some councillors around that table that are not going to engage. They seem more sophisticated in terms of their social media. I don't think they're going to go down these little rabbit holes. And I don't think they're going to do it in debates either. Well, it's about time somebody raised the bar, and if it's the newcomers that can do that, then more power to them. Laura Babcock from Power Group, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in today. My pleasure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. World leaders uh, gathering over the weekend, of course, at a World War I centennial ceremony, of course, uh, recognizing the 100th anniversary of uh, the armistice uh, that ended World War I. 
Uh, many of the leaders spoke of the dangers of nationalism. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau among them, uh, and others talking about, uh, well, a number of different things that, frankly, are in the news these days. Uh, among uh, his many comments, uh, the Prime Minister, uh, that's Prime Minister Trudeau specifically here, says attacks on the media are not just about getting your preferred political candidates elected, for example. They are about increasing the level of cynicism that citizens have towards all authorities, towards all institutions that are there to protect citizens. Uh, and similar comments from uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel and so many others. Uh, interesting uh, audience that was there. I want to bring John Calderoso into the conversation. John, of course, is a Ph.D. professor of anthropology and linguistics and languages, an expert on the people, the conflicts, the history and culture of the Caucasus region and Russia, and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. John, great to have you on the show again. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be back. John, as, as, as though these leaders, the Prime Minister, uh, Macron, the President, and, of course, Angela Merkel, uh, was Donald Trump aware that they were talking about him? <laughs> well, that's a difficult question. Um, perhaps so. He seemed to be sulking and, uh, uh, you know, did, did manage to kind of thumbs up or whatever with Vladimir Putin. Uh, so maybe, maybe, and that's why perhaps he didn't go to the, the ceremony, uh, you know, the, the um, cemetery. <clears throat> but um, uh, supposedly uh, the flight was canceled and he didn't want to do more motorcade, uh, run out. But uh, it's quite possible that he didn't understand what was going on. Um, Macron was being sort of subtle and uh, a bit tricky in his terminology, really, uh, contrasting patriotism and nationalism. So I would imagine if Donald was following and listening, uh, he was probably profoundly confused. You just mentioned two words that are very much part of this, uh, this discussion, and, uh, and we're being bandied about quite often, obviously, during this meeting over the weekend, uh, and that is nationalism and patriotism. And do you get the impression that the president is conflating those two? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, the terms sort of mean what you want them to mean at the time you need to use them. Uh, they're a bit squishy. Uh, nationalism, of course, is, is in this context, I think, fairly well understood to mean something bordering on fascism, that this is an isolationist movement or an isolationist uh, sympathy or, or, or perspective, and it's one that is going to... Um, Address the issue, uh, support the interests, and address the interests of a small uh, group defined by a state, as opposed to everybody else. And sort of you know, screw everybody else. Uh, we don't care, you know, what your needs are. We're looking for our own. And that's of course Donald Trump. Patriotism, patriotism could be construed to sort of mean protecting that, but I think in this context, and certainly I think what Macron means is that all this stuff, all these legalities and military issues, all this business about borders and state interests, they all have a kind of upper layer that goes on here that really consists of declared values and morals. And that's what makes uh, alliances, that's what makes um, antipathies as well meaningful. And uh, what, what uh, Macron is, is saying is, is that the nation state's too small now, uh, including the U.S. and Russia and everybody else, and that these overarching uh, systems of values that are expressed by alliances uh, are really uh, the stuff of civilization. And th these are what really um, uh, should be defended, and that's what patriotism is really about. That's what I think he said, Macron was saying. Otherwise, it's almost contradictory in traditional uh, terms, 
Um, so I can imagine why Donald, if he were listening, and I'm not entirely sure he was, uh, he would be profoundly confused. Well, it just seems so baffling, I think, and, and probably is baffling to a number of those leaders that were at that conference as well, John, that in you know, here we are in 2018 when, you know, these countries are, are trying to build alliances, uh, whether it's for economic deals, for trade, etc., or for defense, or, or basically uh, to, to fight some of the, the, the common problems we have, such as terrorism, etc., uh, and you've got you've got the president of the most important country in the world basically an isolationist saying I don't want to have anything to do with any of you. Yeah, in fact, if anything, he'd, he'd rather be snuggled up against Russia, perhaps, um, where the values are, are at odds uh, and the prospects for alliance uh, are just about zero. Um, uh, so it's any any political calculus that omits the dialogue, dialogue of values and morals is incomplete. And that's the problem with the real politic. It typically uh, holds such dialogue in contempt. But really, this is the glue that makes civilizations hold together. And you're not going to enter an alliance with someone whose values or a nation whose history and values are diametrically opposed to you, unless it's absolutely essential, you know, like, like the alliance, say, between communist Russia and, uh, and the West in World War II to, to counter Hitler. Uh, so there are extreme circumstances where uh, moral discourse is, is sort of set aside. But uh, what was going on in World War I uh, and the alliance and, and America's entry into it, Canada's entry into it, um, these were all uh, really predicated on a, on a very real web of value uh, and moral, moral perspective that was shared. Um, you're not going to enter, a country's not going to enter into an alliance in which it works against the country's interests. There's always some component of self-interest involved, whether it's trade or climate control or whatever, climate uh, management. But um, uh, Trump is totally oblivious to any of this, and, and uh, uh, when he declared himself a nationalist, I think he simply meant that he was an isolationist. But, of course, the term you know, opens a door to white nationalism and basically fascist uh, uh, movements. Well, there was a common theme, and I and I thought mm-hmm. the, the the platform that, that they used, of course, this uh, memorial for the 100th anniversary of the uh, the end of uh, World War One, I, I think, was very very fitting, uh, because the the comments from Angela Merkel, from Macron, from Trudeau, and and, and other leaders uh, seemed to have that common theme. And uh, mm-hmm. basically, as as Trudeau said in his speech, uh, when people feel their institutions can't protect them, they look for easy answers in populism, in nationalism in closing borders and shutting down trade in xenophobia. Uh, basically saying that, look, at these are the things that were in the, the f- contributing factors to the beginning of World War One, and we don't want to repeat those. And that, that, that's a pretty strong message, and I think a very vibrant message and very fitting message given the, what's going on in the world today, and most of which, by the way, is being directed by Donald Trump. I think uh, Trudeau's message injected a very crucial uh, dimension to, to the um uh, exchange or the uh, dialogue that was going on uh, in Paris, and uh, he's absolutely right that attacks on the media uh, inculcate uh, widespread cynicism. They don't just carry somebody's preferences or whatever, which is, I'm sure, what Fox News is thinking, but no, they contribute to an overall erosion of trust um, in the authorities, whether they're uh, government authorities or anybody else, and we're seeing that kind of thing. Um, and there's certain uh, the U.S. is sort of predisposed toward that with this concept of pioneer integrity and 
uh, some kind of strange belief. We really don't need to be governed, you know, uh, that sort of weirdness. And uh, Canada, thank God, doesn't share that, the peculiar interpretation of, of uh, its early history. But um, Trudeau was absolutely smack on with that. And this is probably the most damaging thing um, that Trump has done. And it spills outside the United States. It's not just confined to his own jurisdiction. Is there, is there a tone developing here? It's probably already been there, but it just seems so blatant that, uh, on this past weekend, John, uh, among, well, I was going to say U.S. allies. I'm not so sure that they're allies anymore, but by on paper they are. I mean, there's a G20 meeting coming up uh, very shortly, uh, and, and obviously I, I'm getting the sense that when you listen to Macron and Merkel and others talking here, they're getting kind of fed up with, with Trump's antics. And uh, I, I know that she made a comment about a year and a half or so ago that said that uh, the NATO was going to have to learn to get along without Donald Trump, mm-hmm. uh, which sounded a little outlandish at the time, but uh, maybe they've resigned themselves to the fact that they're going to have to do this. And they, that there's, I sense their tolerance level is really, really starting to wear thin. I think you're absolutely right, Bill. I, I think that they sense in some way that, that Trump is, is unregenerate. And he, nothing can be done with Trump. Trump is, is what you get, and it's, if anything, you're going to get worse. Uh, he's deteriorating, I would say, in some ways. Uh, and I think that the message that Trump gives off is in some ways at odds with what might be obtained or might be sent out by the American military. So I know when he first challenged NATO, uh, the Pentagon spent about a week calling the various allies and assuring them that nothing had really changed. So there's an incoherence. Uh, in, in American uh, policy, and Trump is seen as, as basically uh, a kind of aberration, I believe. Um, and there's nothing you can do with Trump. I mean, Trump, uh, whether it's domestic or international, I mean, Trump is, is uh, in some ways in serious trouble now because of the uh, Democratic takeover of the House. And um, I think the effects of that are going to be quite dramatic, and we'll see those in January. Uh, so I think in some ways he's seen as a, a bit of a lame duck, um, and certainly he's an irrelevancy uh, insofar as he's going to promote any kind of policy line. He's inconsistent, uh, and he's obviously hostile. He's um, uh, uh, somehow uh, aligned uh, with, with uh, Putin, um, probably via compromise and other things. But you're in a situation here. I mean, he started making these comments right after he won the election, of course, yes. a couple of years ago, and, yes. and 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 at the first couple of G7 and then G20 meetings. I mean, he was the same way that this isn't fair. We're getting ripped off, etc. Mm-hmm. And and I got the sense at that time, John, that a lot of the other leaders cut him some slack because they figure, okay, look, we're all entitled to a little bombast every now and then to try to score some points on the home front. Mm-hmm. But there's a consistency to what he's saying now, and, and and let's face it, in many instances now we get some insight into what's going on inside the Trump White House from. Uh, people like Bob Woodward and others that have talked to folks in there and, and basically saying that, uh, you know, the only checks and balances there are the ones that some of the staff impose on Trump without Trump knowing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you mentioned some of the military actions and some of the things that, that Trump ordered that, that that Madison Kelly simply said, we're not doing that. Yeah. Uh, just forget about it because in a day he'll forget he even said it. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a, that's, a, that's a dangerous road they're going down because one of these days they're not going to be able to stop it. Uh, well, I, I agree entirely, Bill. I, I think that he's being managed in a way, as you say. Um, he's grossly incompetent. He's uh, mercurial. I think he's he's suffering from uh, some kind of a uh, brain disorder, a progressive disorder. Um, and I think that so far the damage has been uh, kept under more or less control, although I think he's, he is creating serious rifts with Europe. Um, 
And I do think you're absolutely right that the day may come when the fail-safe mechanism fails. Uh, and and uh, something really drastic and, and, and uh, irre- irreparable uh, emerges. And, and um, uh, then there'll be lots of blaming. Well, I never supported him and whatnot. We'll, we'll see. I hope it doesn't happen. But um, the world's full of ugly surprises. And Donald Trump certainly is no one um, prepared to meet most of those. But you study this. You mentioned this to us some months ago, John, during a conversation. I mean, part, part of your expertise, anthropology and linguistics and languages, uh, you study speech and speech patterns. And, and you've told me that you and, and some, of your, uh, some of your fellow uh, professors have some serious concerns just in watching this guy perform. Well, way, way back. <laughs> there was a meeting in March of 17. Excuse me. <clears throat> and I had two colleagues with me, both of whom were... Well, well versed in uh, more clinical dimensions, um, and both are very confident. They said he he has uh, no executive function. It was a specific uh, diagnosis, so he can't put sentences together in any kind of elaborate way. So he speaks in a very simple fashion, um, and that he's unable to process information. He can't read probably, um, and he's uh, probably has difficulty understanding what's said to him. That's called agnosia. Um, and I think that the question is, what has destroyed or compromised is executive function. Executive function is sort of like the processor that assembles all the information you have in your head. Um, and uh, my, I, I floated to them the idea that it was frontotemporal dementia. Um, with, uh, it comes in three flavors. One, uh, and he has two of the three flavors, one of which is aggression and uncontrolled impulse. And the other one is progressive, uh, non, what they call progressive non-fluent aphasia. And at some point he'll wake up and he won't be able to talk and he won't be able to understand a word said to him. Um, and apparently the progression is fairly slow and all of a sudden, boop, it's like you fall over a cliff and uh, you pass that critical turning point and, and you're in a, a vegetable, not a vegetable state, but you're in this kind of weird a, a lingual state. And I think, I'm pretty sure, Don, you know, when he was t- talking about anonymous, and he couldn't say mama, mama, mama. <laughs> That's classic. That's a classic symptom, a classic sign. Occasionally he slurs his speech, his speech gets simpler, and he repeats things over and over again. Um, this is apparent. These are, these are signs of this uh, syndrome. Well, because there are some concerns, and some concerns being raised by staff, as we've said. Now, they don't want to speak on the record, of course, but we know, for instance, that Trump will not read briefings. Uh, you know, and, and even those that are put in front of him apparently have to be very short, like no more than one paragraph with very simple words. So, mm-hmm. Which begs the question, is it that he doesn't want to read them or that he can't? He can't. That's my guess. He probably never was particularly inclined to such things, but uh, my guess is that he, he can't. Um, I have read a sort of the industry that's of books that has been spewed out about Trump. Um, and the, the one by uh, Omarosa um, was useful in that it gave background. Apparently he was not always like this. Um, he's always sort of amoral and, and, and you know, corrupt in his dealings. But apparently he talked like a normal human being. And there, are foot, there is footage of him, and you can see him. He's talking normally, not, not anymore. Uh, so I think the 25th Amendment is going to have to be invoked at some point here, whether the U.S. wants to own up to that or not. And, of course, it's going to be a kind of a, a nasty uh, 48 hours or whatever, but he'll have to be removed by force. And, um, and then uh, Pence will step in for the remainder of whatever um, the term would be. That's, that's my, what I think is going to happen. 
I also think that Vladimir Putin probably recorded their, their two-hour private meeting last night. <laughs> and um, some very good, reliable Russian sources strongly suggest that what Putin's going to do is reveal um, post um, um, the talk, and we'll hear Trump uh, blathering treasonously, openly so, and Putin's intention is to uh, trigger impeachment proceedings. And that will tie the U.S. up politically for another year and a half, two years. Um, he's playing Trump, isn't he? He's playing Trump. And Trump, Trump's got a big lesson in betrayal coming down the road. <laughs> I'm pretty confident of that. He's playing Trump pretty thoroughly. And I think he wanted to meet with him this time around. But the purpose of that, uh, you know, maybe just get some more uh, compromise on him. Um, and uh, I get the impression that, that I haven't followed all the details, but that did not happen. I know Trump's handlers were determined to keep him away from Putin. Um, but he's, he's venal and probably just seeking a Moscow tower, um, uh, that sort of thing. But he's, he's oblivious to the fact of what, of what Putin's all about. I mean, this guy has people killed. This guy, yeah, yeah. this guy ran the KGB. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's he's not a nice guy. No, he's not. Uh, he, he's he's a ruthless head of state, uh, seeking only the interests of Russia, uh, trying to claw back to, to some some form of status for his nation. Uh, he kills people and uh, uh, does so brazenly. So I think <laughs> I think Trump um, Trump is like a child. Uh, he's very childlike, and again, apparently, emotional deterioration is also part of this syndrome. Um, uh, and he's, he, he thinks that the personal rapport matters. You do have to establish some kind of civil conduct and degree of trust if you're going to engage in diplomacy with somebody. But in the long run, the interests of the other person's nation and the interests of your nation are the dominant features. And Trump is totally oblivious to this. John, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Great to get your perspective on this. Thank you, Bill. Good to have you with us again. John Coloroso, of course. Uh, PhD professor of anthropology, linguistics, and uh, expert on uh, the Russian people and the Russian government as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. If uh, last uh, week's midterm elections in the United States uh, were any concern uh, about a number of different issues that are going on south of the border, including the trade deal, well, uh, you're very, very legitimate concerns, I think, are, are going to be realized here in just a couple of seconds, because some of the musings that have come out from the, uh, which will soon be democratically controlled House of Representatives, uh, indicates that the uh, USMCA deal, that's that trade deal struck between Canada and Mexico and the United States a little while ago, may be in danger. Uh, apparently not too many people on either side of the border like what's going on here, and uh, of course nobody's ratified it as of yet. Joining us to talk about this, Ian Lee from the Spot School of Business at uh, Carleton University. Good morning, Ian. How are you doing today? morning, Bill. I'm doing just fine, thanks. This does not surprise me. Does it surprise you that there's a lot of dissension about this deal? No, no, um, and I'm not at all pleading uh, some kind of special clairvoyance. Um, the record is very clear to anybody who looks at it. Uh, the Democratic Party and particular voices in the Democratic Party, Senator Sanders, of course, uh, and, and others have um, been very, very critical of NAFTA. They've also been very critical of the TPP. And indeed, as I've uh, noted uh, many times, the Democratic Party has never voted formally in a legal vote in the U.S. House to support a trade agreement, a free trade agreement. The 1993 trade agreement that was uh, promoted and signed eventually into law by Democratic President Bill Clinton only went through the House with the support of the Republican members. It was voted against 
by the Democratic members, but there were enough so-called blue dog Democrats or conservative Democrats as well as Republicans that together they were able, Clinton was able to put together a majority. But there are significant numbers of Democrats in the U.S. House then and now that are very um, hostile, very critical of uh, trade agreements. And, and so it is by no means a done deal. It may ironically be a situation similar to 1993 when it comes up next year, early next year, a similar situation whereby enough Republicans and some Democrats support it, but that's by no means certain because the Republicans have become more, uh, some Republicans have become more hostile to trade agreements as well. So I would argue that the conditions on the ground in the U.S. House are less hospitable, less supportive of trade agreements today, meaning 2018, 2019, than they were back in 1993 when the Republican Party was absolutely gung-ho, 100% gung-ho, in support of trade agreements. Now they're more lukewarm and conflicted themselves. So I think it means that this is going to be very problematic. It, and it runs contrary to, I think, a lot of the, the perceptions some people might have, uh, you know, because you've got Trump wandering all over the place saying that every trade deal we've ever signed is unfair and the U.S. Yeah. is getting ripped off, etc. Uh, he's not alone in thinking that. The Republicans have been the free traders most of the, I guess, the last 70 or 80 years anyway. Yes, yes, absolutely. They were. And, 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 and in fact, I don't want to give the idea that, there's not, that they've done an about-face every last one of them. There's still lots of Republicans in the Congress that are still very pro-free uh, trade. And, and supportive of trade. But there are others, especially, I think it's fair to say, in the Rust Belt states, where the, the support has become more uh, tepid, more lukewarm, shall we say, uh, simply because the uh, free trade benefits have been uh, uneven. And, and I mean by that, some parts of the country and some industries have done very, very well under free trade, and some industries have done not so well. And, uh, and the Rust Belt states, as we all know, are not doing anywhere near as well as the big cities. Not just the coastal big cities, but, you know, the Chicago's and the New York cities and the San Francisco's and the Atlanta's, they're all doing very well or much better. And then you get out to the burbs and the small towns and they're doing a lot worse. So, uh, again, it's, uh, it really depends. Uh, Bill, I think it comes down to Nancy Pelosi. Because, remember, in the U.S. House, the speaker of the majority party is, uh, wields the gavel. Mm-hmm. And they control a lot. They control things like um, when something will come up for a vote. They literally, that's, in the, that's under the control of the Speaker. The other thing is that the Speaker hands out, uh, or at least with a lot of tacit support, the Speaker approves, endorses the committee chairs. And they're very prized by members because they get big stipends, they get a huge expense account, they get a huge office support staff. So when you're the chair of the banking committee or chair of the energy committee, it's a really big deal in Washington, D.C., and so people fight like crazy to get that. And the speaker's influential, so the speaker has a lot of power. It's not unlimited, but you have a lot of power. And so it really depends on how much power she wants to use of her own capital on the free trade agreement, given that, it, it, that there's so much conflict 
within the Democratic Party surrounding free trade. And uh, it's going to be fascinating. I'm sure right now, as we speak, I'm sure that they are fighting behind closed doors tooth and nail over this issue, the anti-trade or fighting for it to come up for a vote and for Nancy Pelosi to support killing it because they'll need the tacit approval of the speaker. Or, and the other side is uh, working very hard to, uh, to get it supported because they realize, at least they believe, that the Republicans will use that against them in the 2020 election. So it, it, there's a lot of agendas going on here. <laughs> All right, and, and with that in mind and with some of those concerns, I mean, let's go down that road for just a second. If they do hold this up, maybe if they don't even kill it yet, but at least hold it up and say, wait a second, let's back off of this just a little bit. Uh, what does that mean? Do we, do we go back to square one? Um, I think we would be, it would be in limbo in essence. In other words, the existing free trade agreement has never been rescinded or abrogated or canceled, so it would continue on, but it would be uh, like a lame duck uh, because, Everyone knows it, it doesn't, uh, it's an orphan, I mean, in the sense that there's nobody claiming to be the mom or the dad. Uh, there's a lot of people who want to get rid of it. And uh, although I, the, the, uh, the other issue, of course, is that the longer it gets delayed, the longer it runs into the politics of the new Mexican government being sworn into office. And, of course, the Canadian government uh, up for re-election in October of, 19, uh, of 2019. So um, it, gets, it gets yet messier. And, of course, they're already campaigning for the 2020 election because that's when the president is up for re-election, as well as, of course, one-third of the Senate and the entire House of Representatives. There's a procedural issue that I wanted to, to throw by you here, Ian, because we've talked about this, and, and the whole reason why this deal was being negotiated in the first place is because the, the Congress gave the president permission yes. to begin negotiations. This is not supposed to be the president's job. As a matter of fact, it's not his job. It's the Congress's job. When the, when the Democrats take over the House, is there a chance that they may simply rescind that and say, you're not in charge anymore, we'll negotiate trade deals, thank you very much? They could. They could, and I think this is one of the, I mean, they can actually rescind any, I mean, the, the House of Reps is, I, I don't want to push this too far, but it's similar to the, uh, to the House of Commons. And I don't want to push it too far because their Senate is elected. Of course, our Senate is not elected, but it is a two-house system. Both houses must pass a bill before it can be signed into law, same as the Canadian system. Mm -hmm. The only difference is in the states, the president signs the bill into law, and in Canada, it's the governor general. But this is really a distinction without a difference. It, there is a procedure, and both houses have to support it. What that means is both houses has a, a veto, in essence. Even our lowly Senate, you know, which doesn't have any respect, if they don't vote a bill in, it's very difficult to get a bill into law because <laughs> the Senate has to re-vote it and re-vote it. Excuse me, the House of Commons has to re-vote it before. Uh, I don't want to get sidetracked on that, but on the, in the states, it's much more clear-cut. If the House does not support a bill, it doesn't matter. It, it, you know, you can't, you can't, the Senate can't say, we're going to uh, overturn. They can't overturn a, a House decision. They can vote differently from the House decision and say, we support this bill. But both houses must support the bill. So in essence, the House and Nancy Pelosi have a veto. And they can exercise it, so they can make the life very difficult for Mr. Trump. I think they're going to, by the way, um, certainly on the, his expense accounts and the Russia investigation and so forth. But they can make his life difficult on every bill that is introduced in the House by not going along with the bill that he would like to see. And so she does have a lot of power. Now, that also means she's got some leverage 
And the, what for me, Bill, is the fascinating question is, is she going to try and leverage her, her support for the new NAFTA, as I like to call it, uh, for something else from Trump saying, because she's really big on health care, public health care, almost yeah. call it Canadian health care. She may be saying to Trump, you know, Trump, you want this trade agreement really badly. Well, you know, I want public health care. I want uh, Obamacare supported. So are you going to help me, Mr. Trump? So she might start to get into old-fashioned horse trading and use NAFTA as the bargaining chip or leverage that she has over Trump for the things she wants. Because I think she cares a lot more about public health care than she does about free trade. Given how unpredictable Trump can be, though, with those initial discussions between Pelosi, would have to, I would think, be with Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader, as opposed to the president himself. For sure, because they understand that they have to go through both houses. Yeah. They even have this, I won't get into the weeds, I promise, but they have this little mini bureaucracy there. It's called conference. And conference is the senior leaders of the Senate and the House, where they get together regularly, I understand weekly, to negotiate differences between two bills. Because Canadians may think, well, what happens if the House passes one version of a bill and the Senate passes another version? Well, this thing called the conference, which is this little mini-committee of the most powerful people on both sides, they're the ones that get together to massage the bill into one common bill that both houses will support. And uh, that thing called the conference is obviously very powerful because they're the ones that, you know, turn the sausage (laughs) into a thing called a bill that becomes a law. And so it's very important. And uh, so she's going to, and she she is one of the key people on that conference, by the way. So it's going to be really, really interesting to see all this horse trading going on and to see uh, whether, of course, whether Trump is going to go along with it, too. How badly does he want a new NAFTA, as opposed to going along with whatever she's asking from him. It's going to be interesting to see the politics within politics over the next couple of weeks as this unfolds. Ian, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure. Thanks. Ian Lee from the uh, Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. And and obviously this is going to have implications uh, right here locally uh, because, let's face it, one of the, the side issues, and maybe not so much of a side issue, one of the main issues, of course, are the tariffs that are still in place on steel and aluminum. That has a huge impact on what could be happening uh, here in Hamilton with our uh, heavy industry. And I know they've expressed ArcelorMittal and Tavasco and uh, and certainly uh, uh, Tavasco, uh, I was going to say U.S. Steel. That's, that's going back a few years, but Stelco, of course. Uh, and if this doesn't get resolved pretty soon, it is going to start to have an impact on their, their business operations. So we need to see some resolution, uh, especially when it comes to the tariff situation, but just as importantly about the trade deals. And, and like I say, there's a lot of rumblings, just some comments that are being made. Uh, by both Democrats and Republicans, that this is not going to get an easy ride. And, uh, well, we already know that there are people on this side of the border that are not very pleased with the trade deal, especially in the dairy industry. And maybe the best advice you can give them at this stage right now is uh, just hold your powder because this thing may blow up down in the States and never actually come to fruition. Uh, listen, just before we get a break, I want to remind you, there's a this busy week coming up this week. Uh, among the many items that we want to talk about is uh, the uh, Realtors Auction, which is coming up on Thursday night. This coming Thursday night at Michael Angelo's up on the South Mountain. 
And uh, this is the this is officially the kickoff, I guess, really for our CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign. Uh, the realtors have been our partners uh, many many years now, and have raised an incredible amount of money, which of course we in turn uh, throw into the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope and uh, make sure that kids can have a Christmas and adults that uh, are in dire straits can have a Christmas. But it all starts on Thursday. Uh, we've had some of the guys from the Realtors Auction uh, on the program, of course, in the last couple of weeks. It's a dinner now. It's a, If you haven't gone for a couple of years, this has evolved now into a, not just a, an evening with a little bit of nosh, but now there's a dinner involved, a uh, silent auction, some live auction items, a trip to a week in uh, Dublin, I believe, airfare, accommodation, everything included in that, uh, some uh, sunshine resort vacations, and uh, lots of other things that are going on. It's a great place to, to basically start your Christmas shopping if you haven't done that yet because there's a lot of great items there, like tickets for Raptors games and, and so many other things. And it's it's all about the auction, the silent auction, and, of course, the live auction. And all the proceeds, of course, go to the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope. So uh, we'd love to see you there. There are still some opportunities. I was talking to the folks up at uh, Michelangelo a couple of days ago, and uh, there are still some tickets available. If you haven't gone for the last little while, this is a good year to go. Uh, because it's going to be a blast. The food is always fabulous up there. Uh, and the atmosphere, of course, for the auction and for the evening is just uh, incredible. It's a great time and a lot of fun. So check it out. You can call Michelangelo's or you can call the uh, Hamilton Burlington Realtors Association and they can give you all the details on that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.